good number here. Um, I know we have visitors who walked around and met uh, some of you, so we're glad you're here. We want you to come back and be with us uh, every chance that you get, every opportunity you have. And um, I hope that the things that we say today, that you'll open up your Bibles, you will search them, you'll find that they are so, and if you do, that you'll want to obey God in doing so. If you got a question about anything, please feel free to ask me. thought you were coming, you are coming up. All right. So, um, without any further delay, let's get into the lesson. We're talking about this quarter, we're talking about this year, the idea of being holy, um, for God is holy. And God wants His people to be holy. We are talking about this quarter, the idea of being holy in my worship. And I'm focusing right now, in, 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 over this uh, couple of weeks, in the passage, or on the passage, in John chapter 4, where Jesus says, true work, speaks of true worshipers of God. And that they worship uh, in spirit and in truth. Now this morning we're going to talk about the idea of being holy in my worship. And I'm just calling this simply according to truth. Let's get right into it. And it will become apparent, uh, obviously, what I'm emphasizing. But let's go back. I hope we're going to go back. Let's go back and, uh, yes. Let's ask the idea or look at the idea of worship. You may remember that I put this definition of worship up. I said that it is the act of showing respect. If I am worshiping God, whatever I am doing, and that can transcend this building, obviously, and anything that I'm doing in my life that is of worship to Him, I'm showing respect. I am showing my love, demonstrating my love for God. It can be an act, a single act, like the Lord's Supper that we partook of a moment ago. Or it can be an expression of reverence. Holy Father, as we begin a prayer or something like that. Oh, righteous Father. Jesus would say in John 17. It can be an act or an expression of reverence. It can be a form, and the Lord's Supper would fit into that, of something that is of a form, a certain way. There are certain things involved in it that make it the Lord's Supper because it is what God has required of us as we take the Lord's Supper. So it's a religious practice. But in that, we show devotion. Greg, when he was talking about the Lord's Supper, he spoke of what the Lord had done. He read that beautiful passage from Hebrews 9 and how much more Christ has achieved with what He has done. We are devoted to Him for that. We esteem Him. We put Him high for that. And as we look at this whole idea of worship, you may... Re- now, that's weird. You may... <laughs> I promise you when I set it up, it was not doing that. So let's see if it'll... Well, okay. Uh, Edward, if you got any clues... You know, help me out here. But anyway, uh, as we, let me just put the rest of this up here and see. Uh, yeah, that one's coming up fine. They're not all clicking up here. That's so weird. So I may have to do this without it, unless you can figure it out. Uh, that's, that's very weird. I set it up yesterday and wasn't doing that. I'll let him fool with that. Let me talk about what's on there. You may remember that when I put up the definition of worship before, that I talked about the idea of the word worship in English. And that it comes from, literally, it traces back to the idea of kissing toward. Or literally, it was used of a dog who would lick the hand of its master. And as that dog did that, there were a lot of things involved. A dog is an obedient animal by choice. Um, It wants to obey its master. It wants to give devotion to its master. It licks the hand of a master 
because it is devoted to it, because it loves it, obviously. But in that, there is a giving of self. The animal gives itself, and it will at all costs, even to the point of death. Now, that essence of that level of devotion, that level of dedication to a master, that's worship. And so we, we began to talk about Thank you so much, sir. It was wonderful having such attack on, on hand. But that level of devotion is exactly what we're trying to achieve when we worship. So you can easily see why that word would be chosen as the word that describes everything, whether it's the Lord's Supper or it's my daily walk with Christ. Everything I do in worship to my chosen master, Jesus. Now let's go a little bit further. You may may remember that I looked at John 4 and how that Jesus met that Samaritan woman. And uh, as he began to talk to her, he knew things about her, and she recognized immediately he must be a prophet, for he knows that the man I'm living with is not my husband, etc. She quickly moved to a religious question. She was a Samaritan. They were at Jacob's well, in, and I would, I would believe that it would be off in the distance, well in eyesight, not far from the well, it being at the foot of Mount Gerizim. And so she said, our fathers say, this is the mountain to worship him. But you Jews, you say it is Jerusalem. That's the place to worship. You may remember that. And Jesus said, woman, the hour is coming, and it is even now, when they that worship God will worship neither in Mount Gerizim nor in Jerusalem, but anywhere they worship, they will worship in spirit and in truth. You may remember that he said to her, God is spirit. And they that worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. Go back with me to this passage in Deuteronomy 10 that Kevin read for us. You will find many of these. And in fact, I put up a number of them in my notes, and I, and I wanted to narrow it down to one. And I chose this one from Deuteronomy 10. But look again at verses 12 and 13. When God was requiring worship of these Jews, he wanted the fear, the respect, the reverence we spoke of. He wanted them, though, to also walk in all his ways. Now, notice that. That's way more than an act of worship. That is a way of life, to walk in all his ways. He wanted love. Again, we go back to that idea of the dog licking the hand. He wants that love. He wants that total dedicated love of one being for another. Now, that doesn't mean we're dogs, and God doesn't see us as dogs. Not in that sense. But it does mean that we recognize that He is God. And we are completely devoted to Him. God wanted all our heart, all our soul. Look at verse 13. He wanted that we keep the commandments. That's why we speak of worship according to truth. For God has commandments. Even then in the Old Testament with the Jews, He had statutes. Notice that in verse 13. And that is specific details that are commanded by God. And that's what he wants. And so he says, if you're going to worship me, then worship me with all this dedication, with all of this love from yourself. And I believe that would be worship in spirit. Worship me according to my commandments, my statutes. And that would be according to truth. So worship then must be in spirit and in truth. We said before, and I'll reiterate this, but I won't dwell on it. 
When we speak of worshiping in spirit, it's more than a place. Just because I come to this building, and just because it is a church of Christ, and just because we had the Lord's Supper with the proper elements of the unleavened bread and the fruit of the vine, and just because we have other things that are quote-unquote scriptural, that are according to the truth, that doesn't mean I'm worshiping. If I'm not into it, as we would say, if I'm just not, you know, if I, I just ate a piece of cracker, drank, a, drank some juice, and I really wasn't thinking about it. I was thinking about the Auburn game yesterday, or the Alabama game. I was thinking about the games that are going to be on today. I was thinking about going over to Grandma's house, or whatever it is, but I wasn't thinking about Jesus. Then I wasn't worshiping. I may, it may have been according to truth, quote-unquote. But it certainly didn't have my spirit in it. It's more than a place. But likewise, it's more than a desire. I might say to someone who says, I am sincere about what I do. That is, that's wonderful. And you need to be sincere. And all of that heart and all of that love and all of that devotion, that is something you want. But think back a moment to the dog. The dog meets the master at the front door and licks its hand and shows its love and devotion. And the master has taught the dog, commanded the dog, when I hit the front door, I want all that love for you. But what I want you to do is I want you to run to the back of the room or upstairs and get my slippers and bring them to me. Now that's what I want. And he's trained that dog to do that and told that dog to do that. And the dog knows... What the master wants is those slippers. But let's say the dog gets a crazy wild idea and says, Hey, I ain't getting them slippers today. I don't want to get those slippers today. I sincerely love my master. But I'm not getting any slippers today. I'm tired. I'm getting older. You know, It's hard to go up the stairs and get those slippers. God wants more than the love. The desire, the sincerity, as we view, understand. He really wants us to do what he says do. And so when we speak of worship, we speak of the Spirit. My Spirit. And I'll look at these passages later. But we speak of my Spirit. We speak of being sincere, etc. But we also speak of doing what God says. When Joshua gave that great speech in chapter 24, he said, look, God wants this. He doesn't want anything else. So leave the idols alone, leave everything else alone, and do what God wants. That's what me and my house, that's what we're going to do. You do the same thing. Now let's go a little further with it. Let's go back again to the passage in John 4. Truth is never compromised. Jesus was saying to the woman, you remember he said even to her in that passage, salvation is of the Jews. Just because you're a Samaritan... Just because your fathers, your ancestors, etc., worship in Mount Gerizim, salvation is of the Jews, Jerusalem really is the place to worship. And he wasn't compromising that. He wasn't compromising it for any reason in any situation. When we think of Jesus, and I'd like for you to go with me to the book of John, and we think of passages like this, and there are a number of them. I just chose, I chose a couple. But if you notice in John 1, as it is describing Jesus, it says of him, look down in verse 9, that he is the true light that lights every man that comes into the world. Now, I want you to think about that phrase for a moment, because here's what that means. 
The only source for light. In other words, if you walk into a completely dark room, any of you have been down in a cave where they you know, turn off all the lights, I mean, you can't do this and see anything. Then they turn the light on and you can see everything. You and I spiritually are down in the bottom of a cave. And the lights are out. And we will not see anything unless it is revealed by the true light. And that's what he said. The only source for light is Jesus. If you want light, it comes from Jesus. Now, you'll notice later in this passage that he is full of grace and truth. And I'm going to reiterate that later. But look over, if you will, at John chapter 6. Look down in verse, and he's giving this great sermon. Remember, he fed the 5,000 and he preached to them and all of that. Look down at verse 32. When he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And then he goes on and you notice that he talks about giving light to the world and life to the world. He is the bread of life, etc., etc. What is all of that saying? It is saying that he, Jesus, is full of truth. He is the source of light. Now, make that practical, Michael. Okay. That means... That I will never compromise based on my reasoning, your reasoning, somebody else's thinking. I will never compromise my worship. I will never stray away from this because this is the only source. There is nowhere else to go to know what to do that is right. Now, I could go a lot further with that, but I'm not this morning. But let's just say it like this and let's make it practical. I won't compromise for personal desire. I want, I like. You know, we could talk about that all day long. We could go around the room and we could talk about every act of worship we do this morning, everything we give to God this morning, and we could say, what do you like? What do you want? And all of us would have our personal desires. Some people might say, oh, well, you know, it doesn't matter because God says, I know that. But for the sake of argument, what do you like? And what do you want? We'd all have that. And some people might even venture beyond just, you know, I, I like a, a metal plate as opposed to a plastic one, you know. But they would go so far as to say, you know, I like more of a meal. I like having a full meal than a symbolic token. Somebody else might say, I really hate the crackers. Really hate them. They taste bad. And as a matter of fact, and I don't know about you, when I drink grape juice... I'm still tasting it up here. You know? It, I mean, it's a, it's a hearty substance. So somebody said, I don't like that. But I really would like a piece of chicken, wash it down with some Coke. Now, as funny as that is, we have some of our own brethren that have gone there. So the point is, we don't compromise worship for personal wants or likes. We don't compromise for cultural or societal change. I remember a good friend of mine, very close friend of mine. We studied the Bible together until he quit the Bible studies. But I remember us having a conversation later. We were both in college by that time. And I remember him saying, man, do you realize that you are trying to conform your life to a 2,000-year-old book? Now think about that for a moment. I said, yeah. But here's my answer. It's a 2,000-year-old book. I agree with you. But he ain't a 2,000-year-old God. 
And what He said He wants, He still wants. So it's not for cultural change or societal change. I'm conforming because of what the world is doing. I, I compromise because of what everybody else thinks. You know, it's never outdated. As he went on to tell me in that conversation, the Bible is just outdated. It's old-fashioned. It is never outdated or old-fashioned. Because this is a God who has the ability to see beyond time, to see beyond culture, etc., and to tell us exactly what he wants. Finally, we wouldn't compromise our worship for an individual or group reasoning. In other words, we're not all coming together here and deciding. Somebody asked me a question. It's been a few months back. But someone asked me a question one morning. How do we decide what we do? And I thought that was a great question. In other words, how do we decide what we're going to do when we get together up here at 11 o'clock? That's a great question. And the answer is we decide it by looking to the Word of God to see what He wants. Because it's not, I think, or even we think. Or I feel, or we feel. In fact, let me go a little bit further with that and say it like this. Truth is not derived by decision. You know what a decision is? A decision means you reason something. Like you've got, you know, you've got something in your own personal finances. And you reason through it. You think about the pros and the cons and the this and the that. You reason and then you make a choice. Truth is not derived by decision. We don't reason in the sense of, I know God has said this, but this is what I think. This is how I feel. And then we look at all of that, God's reasoning, my reasoning, we kind of put all that together, and we make a choice. That's not how truth is derived. Truth is very simple. It comes directly from God if it is truth. We go back to John 1. I said I would come back to it. Let's go back to it. He is the light. He lights every man that comes into the world. Verse 14, verse 17. He, Jesus, and I would say alone, is full of grace and truth. Now you see that phrase in John 1. If we look at chapter 16, and I'd like for you to look at that passage with me. How do we derive truth? Not by reasoning. Not by decision. My own personal reasoning. Inward reasoning. But no, I recognize that this is how truth comes to the world. It comes from Jesus, the only source. Look at John 16, read in verse 12. I have yet many things to say to you, he said to the apostles here, but you cannot bear them now. How be it when he, that is the spirit of truth, and he speaks of the Holy Spirit, when he has come, he will guide you into all truth. He'll not speak of himself, but he'll speak whatever he hears, That will He speak, and He will show you things to come. And He will glorify Me, Jesus said. He's going to get it from Me. He's not going to speak of Himself. And He is going to glorify Me. It is going to be My Word that He gives to you. Not His own. Certainly not the Word and the will of human beings. But My Word that He will give to you. And He will show that Word unto you. All things that the Father has are mine, and so I said, He will take of mine, or of me, and show it unto you. That's how we get truth. We're looking to the source, Jesus Christ. I'm going to mention some passages that I will revisit, but these are passages you know. I'd like for you to be turning, if you will, to 2 Timothy 3. And let's talk about that passage for a moment. Michael stands up here, Michael preaches, Wes preaches, Greg preaches, Edward preaches, you know, like last Sunday, other people stand up and teach and preach. 
How do we get the truth we teach if it's the truth? That's the question. Well, here's the answer. 2 Timothy 3, verse 16, all Scripture, and literally every writing, every biblical writing in all these 66 books, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. Notice, it is literally God-breathed. So when I'm reading something, I'm not to say, boy, you know, Paul thought so-and-so. No. Paul wrote down what Jesus said. God breathed. When Paul talks about this in 2 Timothy 3, he says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, for correction, that the person of God, the man of God, can be completely equipped with everything they need because it comes from God. Now, go with me to chapter 4. And we would see these other passages, 2 Peter 1, you know, it's not of man's private interpretation, but they're carried along by the Holy Spirit. Or when Paul said in 1 Corinthians 14, 37, the things that I write to you, they are the commandments of the Lord. So what Paul was saying to Timothy is this, Timothy, you're a preacher. You're an evangelist. Now, he was a very special evangelist, but he was just, and he was an evangelist just like I am, just like Wes is. And what Paul was saying to Timothy is this. Your source of truth is the Bible. And that's it. No councils, no synods, no headquarters, no group of men, no anything. Your source of truth is the Bible. Verses 16 and 17 of chapter 3. Now chapter 4. I charge you, therefore. And you've heard me say this many times, but I really thought it was not only cute, it was a good idea. My professor said down at Liberty, anytime you see the word therefore... Look carefully to see what it's there for, you know. So when I look at this at verse 1, Paul is saying, therefore, meaning on the basis of the fact that I've just told you that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, I charge you, therefore, before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the quick or the living and the dead at His appearing and His kingdom, you preach the Word. What Word? Well, the word that is revealed in all Scripture. And you, be instant, that is, be ready and capable, in season, out of season. You mean like that outdated, old-fashioned stuff my friend was speaking of? Yeah. When the times don't say that's what you really ought to be doing? Yes. Preach the word. Be instant, in season, out of season. And with the inspired Scripture. Notice how verse 2 parallels chapter 3, verse 16. You reprove, you rebuke, you exhort with all long-suffering and doctrine. You see those same words. Timothy, you preach what is inspired. You read it, you study it, you preach it. Why? Because it's not what people will always want, verse 3. And there are going to be times when they'll reject the truth and they'll be carried away with made-up stories, verse 4, fables. You just simply watch in all things and you do the work of a gospelizer, of an evangelist. True worshipers of God, as Jesus spoke of, they continue in the apostles' doctrine. People like Paul, they had a teaching. Where did it come from? Well, we go back to John 16. The apostles' teaching came from the Holy Spirit who took it from Jesus. And we as true worshipers continue in that. Now, there are verses of Scripture that say that, obviously. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. You know that passage. All authority, verse 18, is given to me, Jesus said. 
You go again. Therefore, you go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you teach them, disciples, to do what I have commanded you. And there again, it goes back to the source. Jesus is the source of truth. It was given to the apostles to give to the people. And in Acts 2, we see that. In verses 37 and 38, what do we do? Be baptized. That's just like Matthew 28, verse 19. Down in verses 41 and 42, those that gladly received the word were baptized. Verse 41. Verse 42, they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine. Worship according to truth. Now let's make a couple of final comments here. If I'm looking at this passage in John 4, and Jesus said, True worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. There are a couple of things that I want to make sure that, that I'm careful to take note of. Because worship according to truth obviously requires more than a sincere desire to worship. I have known people, no doubt you have known people. And I believe them to be sincere. Extremely sincere in what they do. We used to have conversations, my grandmother and I. And she would say, I'm sincere. And I would say, I know. I grew up with you. I watched you. I saw that sincerity. I don't question it. She would say, I love Jesus. In my heart, I love Jesus. And i say, I know. I see that. I've seen your life. There's so many things you've done in your life that demonstrate your love for God. Even taking care of this wild buck while you were too old to be doing that. I know you do. But worship is more than that. Love for God is more than that. I can't just say, because I know I feel love in my heart for God, and I'm sincere about what I'm doing, that that's the end of the story. It is not the end of the story. Because what I have to do is ask some questions. I have to question, what is right? If Jesus is the light, and I doubt any sincere person would say he's not. If he is the light, if he's full of grace and truth, then that means he has the truth. He knows what is right. Michael doesn't always know what's right. And you can bank on that. I don't. You don't always know what's right. But Jesus does. So what is right? Because God can be ignorantly worshipped. Acts 17. Remember that story? Paul goes to Mars Hill and he comes upon a, an, an altar that's dedicated to the unknown God. They were worshipping a God but admitting to themselves, we know there's God out there, but we don't know who He is. Paul said, that's exactly right, and I want to tell you about that God. And so he preached that sermon. God can be ignorantly worshipped. But you know what else is true? God can be worshipped in vain. And that's what Matthew 15 says. Now, what does that mean? It means that it is worship. It is a group of people attempting to lick the hand of their master because of the love and the devotion, the dedication to him, but they're not getting it right. And that's exactly what Jesus said in Matthew 15. Their worship was vain. That means it's of no profit, of no good. It doesn't achieve what you're trying to do, and it doesn't, it's not anything given to God because he doesn't want it. So it's in vain because it's according to the doctrine of man. Now, if you look at that passage, I'm not sure I could get behind this reasoning, but they did. 
And they talked about washing plates and cups and how they did it and ceremoniously how they went about it. And to them, that was an act of devotion to God. It's kind of like when the master says, go get my slippers, and the dog runs and gets a stick or a ball. And the master says, not what I want. You know, you don't get the dog bone for the stick. You don't get the, you know, the dog bone for the ball. I want the slippers. And he trains that dog. And the dog knows if I go get those slippers. I don't know how a dog thinks. I've never gotten in the mind of one. But you see them. They're all there, man. They're happy about it. Because they know when the slippers get in the master's hand, the doggy treat is coming. And that's the way we have to be. I've got to be thinking in terms, not of a doggy treat, but I've got to be thinking in terms of pleasing my master. What is right? What does God want? Because truth can be exchanged. I want you to close with me by going to Romans 1. And let's look at this passage carefully. We don't often read this for worship. But Paul had started this passage by saying in verse um, 9 that with his spirit he served God in the gospel with his spirit. I want you to drop down to verse 26 for a moment. Or 25. And you'll notice how he is speaking of people who changed. They suppressed or put down the truth in their unrighteousness. Something interesting he says in verse 25. They changed, or we would say exchanged, the truth of God into a lie. And they worshipped and served the created. The King James says creature. But the created thing more than the creator who is blessed forever. You know what that's saying to me is this. In my reasoning, in the decisions I make, I can get too carried away with me. And I can start elevating me. I'm right. I know I'm right. The truth is, as Edward was talking about last Sunday, other people are stupid. No, they really are. But I'm right. And because I'm right, I'm going to listen to me. I'm not going to listen to other people. And more than that, I can begin to look at something and focus on it. And I can exchange the truth of God for a lie where I begin to say, this is important, this is what deserves my attention, this deserves my time. Now, that can obviously be something like an idol bowing down to a statue. And we can readily see that. Oh, I look at that man, that's not right, I know that's not right. But it can also be something. Now we begin to more understand that. You know, a person that worships the job, that gives them the money, that gives them the things that they want, and that becomes more important, that deserves the time, devotion, attention, etc., even to the exclusion of God. Well, I can see that, person said. But here's the heart. When it becomes an idea, a philosophy, a way of thinking, just a whole process in my head, where I have elevated me to my own God. And the source for what I do becomes me. My thinking. I think. I feel. I know. And therefore I listen. And I forget how far removed I am from that poor little dog that wants only. It falls all over itself. To kiss or lick the hand of the master it loves. And that's when I have to be converted and become as a little child about my worship all over again. 
true worshiper seeks to please his master. Like Paul said in Acts 9, Lord, what will you have me to do? Forget all my education, my training, my background, my successes, my profit in the Jews' religion. You just tell me what you want, and that's what I'll give you. And he spent the rest of his life doing that. Are you here this morning and not a child of God? You know in your heart you love Jesus. And you know that you want him to be the master of the Lord of your life. Would you confess that he is the Son of God this morning? Would you be willing to change your life, to live your life for him? If you've not been baptized for forgiveness of your sins, will you submit to do that? To have your sins washed away because you're obeying him. You're giving him what he wants. You're being baptized to have your sins removed. And that's what he wants you to do. If you've done that, would you look at your life and say this morning, I want to give everything to the Lord. I don't want it to just be sort of a hit and miss, sometimes go get the slippers, sometimes go get the ball, because that's what I want. I want to give my whole life to Jesus. Would you come forward and ask for us to pray together that we all might do that? And specifically, we will pray for you this morning. Please come. Father, stand and sit.